Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. Today with me, I have one other person, fellow panelist Dan Shapir, ringing in from Tel Aviv, Israel. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, the weather is wonderful, a bit on the warm side, but, uh, you know, can't complain. Right, but the politicians are still awful, right? Oh, yeah. They're, and they're only getting worse. <laughs> I don't know. You know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to tell if, like, all I can say is that... Um, their incompetence is getting in the way of their skullduggery, or however you pronounce it. Skullduggery. Yes. Yeah, that's the way you pronounce yes. it. So, so yeah, that's that's the best thing I can say about them. <laughs> yes, the same is true here. So you're not alone in that. <laughs> um. So Chuck is running around Disneyland as we speak. And for some reason, he made that a higher priority. I don't get it, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it is what uh, it is. And AJ is busy. So it's just Dan and I doing another intercontinental podcast episode. So mm-hmm. today, uh, Dan is going to be doing most of the talking because we are talking about <laughs> things coming down the pike from TC39. This is stuff that's right up his alley. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six things, maybe more, depending on how we address them. Yeah. Uh, coming down from TC39. So with that, Dan, take it away. Yeah, you know, uh, I like to keep abreast of what's going on with our favorite programming language, especially given that uh, AJ is not here. <laughs> so it is. <laughs> we can say that it's our favorite. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, things are keep getting added to the language. You know, the rate seems to be slowing down, but, you know, there are some really interesting additions happening. Now, we, we had episodes about it in the past. Uh, most uh, recently, we had uh, an episode with, um, uh, with uh, who was it? Thomas. Um, to- yeah, Thomas Randolph, uh, episode 532, uh, where we spoke about uh, some, I don't know, 10, 20 proposals, something like that. And it, it was such a lengthy discussion, it actually became a two-parter. But interestingly... Uh, the, the things that I recently noticed that are, you know, really being added to the language kind of as we speak are things that we didn't even discuss uh, during that conversation. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny um, how, uh, you know, we kind of missed it. Either, either the committee did uh, some end run or something, you know, or we just failed to notice it. But in any event, I think they're pretty interesting and some of them at least are also pretty useful. So I thought that it was definitely worth a discussion. Um, but before we actually dive into the details of those proposals, I want to briefly recap the uh, process that uh, TC39 uses to uh, to decide to like you know to uh, to go through adding features into into the language because they don't just do it willy nilly. They have this whole process with multiple steps and stages and um, and that's what I would like uh, to run through uh, so yeah so that's the first thing um, so it turns out that uh, TC39 in the process of adding stuff into the into the JavaScript programming language actually has five steps starting with uh, 
you know, step zero because, you know, everything's supposed to be zero-based in JavaScript. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So stage zero is basically when somebody approaches the committee and says more or less, I have a cool idea and here it is. So it's really a mechanism for allowing essentially almost anyone to propose additions or changes to the language. And no, that's more or less it. Um, but to be an actual candidate into the language, you have to move to stage one, where you need to make a concrete case for the addition of that feature, describe its structure, identify potential challenges with it, edges with it, and probably the most importantly, you need to identify some champion who will advance this addition, you know, lead the, the, the task, as it were. So that's stage one. Stage two is a stage in which the feature gets precisely described in terms of syntax and semantics using a formal specification language and the committee. Um, things move to stage two when the committee expects that there's a, a good chance that they'll eventually actually make it into the language. It, it, it might take a while, it might even take a long while, but there's a good chance that you know it will be added to the to the ECMAScript language specification. And stage three indicates that, you know, effectively it kind of will be added. Uh, and the discussions have reached the stage where, you know, there's no more to discuss about it. It looks good. They want to add it. They do, they are looking for um, potentially further refinement, but one that stems from actually trying out that feature in the field. So that's stage three, when you start seeing those features implemented in transpilers or maybe even in uh, JavaScript engines behind, let's say, a feature flag or something like that. And the final stage is stage four, which basically says that the feature is ready and it's just waiting for the next ver official version of the spec. So because uh, there is a version released uh, every year, you know, it's you kind of wait, need to wait for that uh, uh, document to come out, but it's actually already officially part of the language. So th those are the four, the five stages of uh, adding uh, a feature into the ECMAScript lang language specification so that it does get added into JavaScript. So let me ask you this question before we get into details. And this is one of the things I've always wondered because I'm not you know, a real low-level programmer. So <clears throat> ECMAScript or the, the committee decides, okay, let's implement this, right? So now you've got the different browser engines. You've got the different uh, manufacturers, you know, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and their underlying engines. So are the implementation details of how this, how it's implemented in each browser up to the browser manufacturers? I mean, it's basically, okay, here's what needs to happen. Make it happen. We don't care what happens as long as the end result is the same across the board. Is that how that works? Yes, and but in that regard, it's no different from, let's say, the DOM specification that comes from the W3C. Uh, you know, the the engines are are separate and distinct. Uh, they they don't share code between them. Right. Uh, so yeah, uh, the implementation might you know be done in a completely different programming language, for example. Certainly a different implementation, a different open source project. Uh, yeah. Uh, but they do need to adhere to the standard. And all the engine 
builders or creators are actually have members in the WT in the sorry in the TC39 committee. Mm-hmm. So nothing really can get added into the language unless the engine makers all agree that it can and should be added into the language. So mm-hmm. if they don't know how to implement it or think that there's a problem in implementing it, it won't get added. Anyway, that was all my question. Just a little clarification on the underlying work once the committee says do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, some things are tricky. There's the kind of quote-unquote infamous case of the uh, tail recursion uh, or, tail, or tail optimization for recursion. Uh, you know, when you can call a recursive function kind of infinitely without exploding the stack, um, which turned out to be Actually, so the it kind of got added into the language, and then it turned out that uh, it was actually tricky for some of the uh, browser, uh, for the en- engine uh, builders to actually properly incorporate it into their uh, into the engines. And you know, it turns out that as a result, it it mostly hasn't been. Uh, so these things can theoretically happen, but they really strive to avoid them. Uh, so I'm actually going to go through the proposals, starting with several proposals in stage three. And then if we have time, work our way into a few proposals in stage two, and then me, even maybe one that it's still in stage one. Because obviously the more interesting ones are the ones that are, you know, effectively going to be a part of the language, not ones that uh, are kind of stuck in purgatory. Um, so, yeah. Um, and and the funny thing is, what kind of uh, uh, drove me to propose this uh, this topic is that uh, I saw two unrelated tweet, tweets about um, uh, language features that are in stage three and that are actually being implemented. Uh, so that uh, and you know, looking at what they do and say, hey, I'm not familiar with these. So I actually started reading about them and and figured try to figure out why they they might be helpful, what I think about them, and and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. So the first proposal that I I would like to mention, which as I said is in stage three, is called the using keyword for automatic resource disposal. And it has to do with objects that have a lifetime or a time span associated with them. A good example might be an object that uh, encapsulates a database handle uh, that you want to close when you no longer need that uh, database connection. Or maybe something that encapsulates a WebSocket that, again, you would like to close once you don't need that WebSocket anymore or maybe a file handle. There are plenty of such examples. Now, you might think, why do we need to explicitly control object uh, lifetime? I mean, don't we have the garbage collection for that? And, and doesn't the garbage collector automatically dispose of such resources? And the answer is that it does or it can. But the problem is with the garbage collector that you don't really have any control about when it runs. Uh, so it might be in a few seconds or theoretically could be in a few minutes or maybe even never. Uh, and as a result, you, it means that such resources might hang around a lot longer than you might want or might expect. Uh, now, when 
resources are plentiful, like memory, then that's not a problem. But when resources are scarce, like database handles or like uh, file handles or network handles, then you want to dispose of them as soon as you don't need them so that, you know, the system can reuse these resources for other tests. Otherwise, it might try to obtain a database handle and fail. Uh, so, so, yeah. So you really want to have kind of this guarantee, as it were, that as soon as you don't need that resource anymore, uh, the system becomes aware of it and can uh, reclaim it. Now, what usually happened in these kind of uh, cases is that um, you would use something like uh, uh, try finally. So you put uh, your, the, the, you know, the, the part where you uh, create the resource or claim the resource in a try block. And then you would have a finally block associated with it where you would call some sort of a dispose or release or close method on that object. Um, now, the, what that guarantees is that whichever which way you exit that try block, be it because of a return a statement or uh, an exception being thrown or whatever, uh, the language guarantees that the finally block will execute and then you get that chance to, uh, to uh, explicitly release uh, that uh, object. But that can get kind of tricky because you're really putting the onus of, of properly releasing uh, resources on the code, on, on the user, on, on, that, on the developer that's actually using that uh, resource. Like if you're building a, um, a library that encapsulates database handles, what you really want is for the library itself to kind of implement the mechanism to, to guarantee proper resource lifetime and not to be dependent on the developer that's using the library, especially because it can get tricky to properly nest and order finally blocks. Uh, 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 have you actually used finally blocks in your code for the, that, kind, that kind of purpose? This is the first I've ever heard of a finally block, to be honest. <laughs> Tells you how much of an in-the-weeds developer I am. I've used try-catch. You know, I've, well, I've seen it and maybe used it here and there, but I, I have never used a finally block before. To be honest, unless, again, you're dealing with resources like database handles from within your JavaScript code, then you probably don't need to. Right. Um, <clears throat> So I, I'm, from what I know, you primarily use other programming languages on the back end for stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that uh, makes sense. We deal with the same thing in, in PHP, you know, on the server side where you've got database connections, you got to open them and, and close them and, and how all that gets handled. You know, in my case, it's usually been abstracted away by Laravel or Drupal or something like that. So, but when I was first writing PHP before those existed, then yeah, I can remember dealing with database connections, but they were usually server side, not... Uh, not JavaScript side, client side. Well, yeah, it, it has to do with the fact that the JavaScript is much more used on the server side these days. Right. I mean, on the client side, lifetime usually is not a problem in any event so much because everything gets released or closed anyway mm -hmm. when you close the tab or navigate away or whatever. 
So really, the, the main issues with the long-lived objects and long-lived sessions and scarcity of resources usually has to do when you're running JavaScript on the back end, which is much more likely than it ever has been now that, you know, we've got all those JavaScript frameworks like claiming the back end. Uh, with as Node as being the first, the primary one, yeah. Yeah, so we've got React server components and whatnot that, you know, are kind of trying to position themselves as the replacement to PHP in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, we're likely to be seeing much more code, run, JavaScript code or TypeScript code running in the back end and having to deal with these sorts of uh, issues. Uh, now, the using keyword, which is in, was introduced for this purpose, is actually derived from or influenced by constructs that exist in other programming languages. Like, for example, I know that uh, C Sharp uh, ha is, has this mechanism and also uses the same keyword for it. So they were, they're, they're definitely being influenced by other programming languages in this context. Now, the way that this feature works uh, sounds a bit complicated, and hopefully I can explain it verbally, you know, without code demos, but it's actually fairly straightforward, uh, I think. Um, so the idea is that uh, if you've got an, an object that you want to have it do its own cleanup, so you have like an object instance that encapsulates some functionality, let's say it has the database handle in some uh, internal field uh, property, and you want it to close that uh, handle automatically when it's no longer needed, what you do is you uh, specify a method on it, uh, and that method needs to have a special name. And that special name is symbol.dispose. Uh, it. <laughs> We, we right. spoke about symbols in the past. Symbols mm -hmm. are like these unique identifier values that you can use instead of strings for property names. And, and they are kind of guaranteed to be unique. Uh, so you don't, you know, get conflicts with, you know, user land code. Uh, and there are a bunch of uh, such global symbols that are, are defined in order to, um, specify, um, you know, language level properties or methods that people can put on their object. For example, iterators have uh, also used this kind of thing to, to specify uh, the, 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 how, for getting the actual iterator out of an object. But anyway, uh, so you, what you would do is you would do an open square brackets symbol dot dispose Close square brackets, that would, and then colon and the and the method uh, definition, and and in that way, you know, you can if you put a prop an expression inside of a bracket in this in this way, it it can actually calculate the uh, property name. So in this case, again, the property name would be simple uh, symbol dot uh, dispose, and then. When you want to use it, what you do is you basically use the using keyword. So you write uh, using x equals the uh, the constructor of 
of like the constructor of the of the object, the the actual object. Sorry. So you you get you assign the object into a variable, but you declare the variable instead of using const or let, you use the using the new using keyword. And what this guarantees is that when that variable goes out of scope, for example, basically at the end of the block or at the end of a function, then it guarantees to invoke that dispose method. So you got a, a mechanism in which you can guarantee that the cleanup code will execute when the variable goes out of scope, when it effectively dies. Um, I'm hoping that I described it clearly. We will put a link to uh, uh, you know a, a short blog post about it that uh, Matt Pocock wrote. Uh, and it's it, once you see it in the code, it's just like five lines of code, so it's it's really easy. So, you, like I said, you just add a property with the specific name to your object, and when you assign that object into a variable, you you declare the variable with the using keyword instead of const or let. That's all you really need to do in order to get this functionality. And because you don't need to mess about with all the try and finally and stuff like that, you know, again, when the variable dies, then that uh, um, cleanup method will be invoked. It's guaranteed. Uh, so, so that's where that that way we can ca- get guaranteed cleanup. Now, interestingly, uh, uh, this is going to be part of TypeScript 5.2. It turns out that TypeScript, you know, they they don't they or let's put it differently. Let's say it in a positive rather than a negative tense. Um, they they only add things into TypeScript these days when they know that they're going to be part of JavaScript. And since things that are in stage three are going to be part of JavaScript, you know, it might take a while, but they will be. They feel okay about adding them. So that's why they're okay with adding this feature into TypeScript 5.2, even though it's not yet supported by your browser. So I'm assuming that TypeScript will transpile this code for now into some sort of try finally thing. But uh, eventually when JavaScript does support it, then they could just emit the, the JavaScript code that will look like the, the TypeScript code just without the types. Uh, so far, so good? So far, so good. It's actually making sense. <laughs> uh, they're, they're also doing like uh, the ability to specify instead of dispose, they're also going to have an async dispose, which basically just does awaits on the dispose to finish before it, uh, before it uh, proceeds going out of the block. So, for example, if I don't know if uh, closing the database is uh, is an, uh, a synchronous operation, but you don't want to proceed with execution before it finishes because maybe you're worried that then you'll try to get a new handle and fail, and you want to guarantee that the handle will be available. Then you use a sync dispose instead of dispose, and the method is asynchronous, and uh, it just works that way. Um, so, so that's the first interesting feature that I wanted to to bring up. And again, 
It's interesting that when we spoke about the TC39 features that we like, this one never even came up. I don't know how uh, how we missed it. Again, maybe maybe it was just uh, flew through the process and we just you know <laughs> didn't notice it back then. So that's the first one. Uh, the other, the next one that I want to talk about is actually one that's kind of near and dear to my heart in a lot of ways, and that's iterator helpers. Um, if you may recall, Steve, uh, I had an entire two episodes on iterators and generators in JavaScript and why I think they're great, but it's also undoubtedly true that they've kind of failed to a great extent because Hardly anyone ever uses them explicitly. Uh, you know, generators make it really easy to create, you know, your own custom iterators, but very few people that I know of actually use it or even un- really understand how it works. Um, what's a, so what's a use case for creating your own uh, custom iterator? Well... If you're creating some sort of collection or sequence, um, it's just a, a really nice way of um, encapsulating iteration. Uh, a lot of other programming languages, by the way, have their own iterator libraries and implementations. Java has it. C++ has it. A lot of programming languages have it. Um, and, for example, Dino actually uses it. So if you want to process streams of data, let's say data coming over a socket or or a web socket or something like that, uh, you can actually encapsulate it as an an iterator or synchronous iterator in Dino, which makes it really nice because you can write your processing code as if it were a regular for each loop uh, or for all of action. Um, so, so it's really nice in that regard. Um, and so in and, other words, you can handle all, you can sort of, um, what's the term I'm looking for, handle all the custom stuff behind the scene, but from a top level code, it looks like you're just iterating over something. Exactly. You just use, let's say a for of, or for a weight of, it looks like a regular loop over an array or something, but you know, on, Underneath the scenes, it's actually potentially doing something much more sophisticated, like reading blocks off of uh, the network or file system or whatever. Um, and and it, in that regard, it's it's really cool. It's really nice. Uh, you can theoretically create your own data structures if you want. Uh, for example, uh, map and set in uh, in uh, JavaScript actually support iterators. So instead of copying their content into arrays, you can iterate on top of them directly. Uh, now, but like I said, unfortunately, most people just don't do it. Um, and if they use iterators, it's really behind the scenes for things like the, the spread operator. And they might not even be aware that it actually even uses iterators uh, in, in order to implement it. it. It just, you know, use it and it works. Um, now, one of the reasons I think that people kind of avoided iterators is that when you wanted to do anything more sophisticated with such sequences, like, I don't know, map them over them or filter them or search inside of them or whatever, 
at the end of the day, you would end up just effectively just copying them into arrays uh, and then doing those operations on arrays. And in that case, well, you know, you might as well just work with arrays to begin with. Um, and the reason for that is that all the iteration methods that we are familiar with for arrays, like map, like filter, like find, etc., just didn't exist or don't exist for iterators. Um, and, and this, again, this is unlike other programming languages which have iterators, which do provide such helper functions or iteration functions that you can use on top of iterators. Um, so, so again, if you had like a map of stuff and you wanted to, uh, I don't know, uh, filter on top of it or whatever, you would end up spreading it into an array and then filtering on the array, something like that. And, and obviously, again, then in that case, why not just use an array from the get-go? So apparently, in order to finally deal with it, uh, TC39 has moved to uh, stage three, uh, the iterator helpers proposal, which what it does, it exactly provides all this missing functionality for iterators. So they specified a prototype for iterators, and on this prototype, they put all the functions that you expect, like find, like, well, actually, find, not sure about find, but I know that they, let me check what they put. They put in, oh, yeah, they do have find. They have sum, take for each, uh, to an array, to create arrays, reduce, all the, exactly like the, the, the functions that you find on the array prototype. They now exist on the iterator prototypes as well. So you can get an iterator and then just filter it or map over it or do all those things and it's built in and it's really nice and we will see if it finally you know causes people to start using iterators in their code or you know maybe maybe that ship has sailed and we kind of missed the boat to continue with my nautical metaphors um but but yeah that's the idea overall i'm personally really happy with it but I do have a bit of criticism. Uh, and the criticism I do have is that, like I said, they decided to implement it as methods on the iterator objects, which means that you chain the functions like you do with arrays. So you would, let's say you have an iterator uh, x, you would do an x.map.filter.find.sum.whatever. Um, and I guess that's kind of what most people expect because, like I said, this way it looks and feels like arrays without actually having to copy the values into arrays. But on the downside, uh, I think that in an, in an ideal world, they should have implemented it as functions rather than as methods so that instead of chaining using the dot operator, we would have piped it from one function to the next. Um, hopefully, I'm explaining it this kind of well. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I don't understand why, though. What's what's the dip, what's the benefit of one over the other? I mean, I'm used to chaining stuff all the time, whether it's in you know PHP or JavaScript. So, what's the benefit of piping it through functions instead of chaining? 
First of all, it's more functional. <laughs> uh, and that seems to be kind of the way where the coding world is headed. But, um, and, and especially when you think about uh, how a lot of the frameworks these days work with uh, expressions and values rather than objects explicitly, like, you know, if you think about stuff like JSX and stuff like that. But um, the main advantages from my perspective are first, first that it makes the mechanism much more extensible. If you want to extend the mechanism that's dependent on chaining, you have to add functions to the um, uh, prototype. And as we know, that's a recipe for naming collisions. So somebody will say, hey, uh, you know, you're missing, uh, there's another uh, iteration method that I would love to have, and you, for some reason you didn't add it in, into the spec, So I, but I want to use it for my iterators. So I will just add it to the prototype because that's the only way I can introduce it into the chain. Uh, but then <laughs> the ECMAScript, the TC39, eventually might decide to actually add it, and then they'll create a conflict, and this has happened with the array methods. So um, if you have it as a standalone function, well, then, you know, there's no chance of collision. Uh, it also makes it much easier for stuff like bundlers to drop dead code. So you only really need to bundle the functions that you use rather than having to kind of put in everything that might exist on the prototype. So there are a couple of benefits here. And so like I said, being functional and, and dealing with expressions and not necessarily requiring object instances for that, making it extensible and lighter weight for the bundling. I actually wrote a blog post a long while back about how such an uh, um, a library might be implemented as a collection of, fun of pipeable functions. Uh, maybe I'll put a link in the, in the show notes to that. But again, I guess that having it even as chain methods is, is better than nothing, that's for sure. Because like I said, for now, currently, iterators are almost dead for the, and partially for the lack of such a library. Okay. At least that's, that's what I'm thinking. Can't prove it. <laughs> um, the, the first version of this iterator helpers uh, will be just for synch uh, synchronous iterators, uh, which means that it won't, you know, I talked about using iterators for sequences like uh, stuff coming over the network. So it, mm -hmm. it's, it won't be applicable for that. For that, you need to support asynchronous iterators. And that's actually also, there's also a proposal for that, but that's currently only at stage two. So stage three is for synchronous iterators. And stage two is for asynchronous iterators, but it really looks similar. Uh, now, what's really interesting is that um, Google has announced their intention to actually implement this in uh, Chrome. Uh, so it's going to come out in uh, in Chrome version one one four one fourteen uh, behind a feature flag. So you would need actually to put uh, a flag on the on the browser's command line if you want to get it, but it does mean that we will be able to start playing with it 
which will hopefully push it more quickly from stage three to stage four and actually getting it released and implemented in all the browsers. So that was the, the second feature, the language feature that I wanted to talk about. Uh, anything before we move on to the next one? No. Okay. Uh, have you ever used sets in your code? I'm talking about the JavaScript sets. Uh, I have looked at those, haven't usually used them. Like I said, I usually revert back to what I'm familiar with, so haven't played with methods too much. Although, looking back, I dare say there might have been times when a set would have worked easier <laughs> than all the manipulations I went through. Yeah, so, so set is this collection that's been added to JavaScript a while back, which basically is just a way for you to indicate if something is part of the set or not. So you add stuff into the set, you know, like, let's say, strings. Uh, you might add, you know, Dan, AJ, Steve, Chuck into a set. And then you would check. So putting in Dan or, or Steve would basically, you could check that they are in it and it would return true. But if you check with about Amy, unfortunately, you will find false because Amy is no longer participating in the podcast. Uh, so... Set is really a, a simple way to, to check if things are part of a set or not. Uh, and like I said, it can be strings, it can be objects, uh, and it's really easy and simple to use, and it's been around for a long while now. It's you know, supported by all browsers. So in other words, uh, it's cleaner than doing like uh, if index of something is not equal to negative one exactly. structure to, to see if something exists. And Yeah, it's simpler. It's it's more intentional because when you use the set, it, it's really clear when reading the code what your intention is. Whereas if you're using an array and then check using includes or index of to check if something is in it or not, it's you know you kind of need to read the code and figure out the intent. It's so how does it work, work with with lists of things like so with like objects? So you know often by one reference. of the things you by Google. So in other words, if I have a list of objects and I want to say, okay, I want all the objects that have this key, you know, three levels down type of no, thing. No, it's not, it's not for that. stuff like that? No, no. Okay. no. It's, it's just by reference. It doesn't actually do any sort of uh, comparison. Um, but um, uh, uh, the one more thing I wanted to mention about sets is also that they're much more efficient because uh, an, a mechanism implemented on top of an array is O of N, when N where N is the length of uh, the array because you effectively need to essentially iterate through all the me members of the array in order to check if something's in it or not. Uh, whereas with a set, they use some sort of a built-in, I assume, they, like, implementation dependent, but they use some sort of a hash or a tree in order to create a much more efficient implementation. So the lookup is probably, let's say, log N or or maybe even constant in many cases, uh, and certainly not all of them. Uh, so, so that's the big advantage of, uh, those are the big advantages of using a set. But it, it always felt that something was kind of missing with sets, because when we're dealing with sets, there's a whole bunch of mathematical operations that seem natural to do. For example, you might want to get an intersection of two sets or the union of two sets. Uh, but so far, 
those, you know, methods or mechanisms were not implemented as part of JavaScript. So you would have had to do, do them yourself. And which is obviously an, <laughs> an invitation for implementation bugs. So now they are going to be provided out of the box as uh, methods on the set prototype. So you can just take a set. Let's say I have uh, two sets. I have a set referenced by the variable X and I have another set referenced by the variable Y. And I want to uh, you know, get a set which is the inter intersection of these two sets. And I can do x dot intersection, open parentheses, y, close parentheses. And what I will get in, in as a return value is a new set, which is the intersection of these two sets. Likewise, I can get the union of two sets or the difference between two sets and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's just a, a collection of useful methods to have on top of sets. And it's really great that it's being added to the language. And again, probably long overdue. You know, we, we keep on talking about the fact that JavaScript is kind of missing a uh, standard library. Uh, and, you know, it seems that slowly but surely DC39 is working to rectify this. So partially it's been doing it, let's say, with the iteration helpers or iterator helpers that I mentioned before. And it's also doing it for sets with the set methods. And that's all there is to it. It's pretty straightforward and, you know, obvious feature to add to the language. Uh, the next one is much less obvious, but on the other hand, probably more familiar to a lot of JavaScript developers. And that's language support for decorators. Uh, that one we might have actually mentioned in previous episodes. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but anybody who's ever used Angular or, let's say, Nest.js or has just come to JavaScript from other languages like Java is proper, probably familiar with the concept and of decorators. And the implementation looks... So what is, okay, let's start out. What's a decorator and what's uh, the benefit of it? You, so decorator is something that you use with classes. So that's both uh, the, the upside and the downside. Of, of, of decorators, at least in JavaScript, that they go hand in hand with classes. So if you use classes, there's a good chance you also end up using decorators. And if you don't use classes, that you, then you'll probably never use decorators. Uh, the idea is to support something that's technically called aspect-oriented programming, which is a mechanism for uh, uh, managing cross-cutting concerns in a kind of a clear, in a clear way. Um, I'll, I'll try to give an example. Let's say we have a whole bunch of, of classes in our code which are essentially unrelated to one another. So we don't expect them to uh, inherit from a, a common base class because they're unrelated. Let's say we have a class for user, and we have a class for computer, you know, we could have a class called entity or whatever, but it kind of seems odd. But let's say, despite the fact that they don't have a common ancestor or, or, or base class, we want them to make, we want to add common functionality to them. Uh, let's say we want to um, have logging, let's say, so that every time a method is called on, on one of these uh, uh, objects, it logs 
blogs, uh, let's say the, the fact that it's been called and the values of uh, its parameters and maybe also the, the return value. So we want to add logging capability or another example, we might want to add the ability to uh, serialize uh, objects. You know, we want to control how certain fields in an object are, are serialized or deserialized into, let's say, JSON. Um, so um, we want to add this functionality of, let's say, serialization and deserialization into these objects. So one way would be to inherit from a common object that implements serialization and deserialization. But like I said, that's kind of odd because, you know, using inheritance for that creates like an association that's not really uh, expected. Also, what would we do about the logging? You know, we want we can in 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 uh, JavaScript. You don't have multiple inheritance. You can inherit from two distinct base classes. You can only inherit from one. So, do we inherit from the serialization base class or from the logging base class? What happens if you want to have both? So, so that's the problem. And decorators kind of strive to fix that. And the way that you do it is you write uh, the at symbol followed by the name of the decorator in front of a class name or a method name or a field name. And it decorates, you know, respectively, either the, cla the class itself or the method or the field slash property. And, by, and the decorator name is actually just a function name. So let's say you decorated a class. The, um, that function is invoked with reference to the class and some additional information and what it returns is a replacement or a modified class that you know that is the original class plus logging or plus serialization now it makes sense kind of tricky to explain so basically you're you're defining another that's the concept what do you want to call it function method piece of code whatever that you want to run, was it run every time the class is instantiated? I mean, do you add a decorator to a class and then you have to specifically call that decorator at some point? Or is it is something that's always run at a certain point in the class lifecycle? It's actually run when that class is created, as it were. So, so yeah, it, it, kind, of, uh, it kind of replaces. So let's say you have a, cl a class mm -hmm. C, capital C. It create it actually causes C to reference the decorated class right. rather than the original class. Okay, so it's sort of an, it's basically an override, is what it sounds like. So, yes, yes, exactly. It's an override. It overrides the the class and it creates that override by calling a function, passing in the original class, and getting okay. back the decorated class. Now. I will put a link. It's it's again. It's kind of difficult to explain APIs without actually showing code, but it's actually fairly straightforward. And like I said, it's it's totally in line with how this mechanism is implemented in other programming languages that uh, support it, and also with the implementation that exists in in JavaScript in existing JavaScript frameworks and libraries like uh, Angular, like Nest. 
Nest, JS, and, and others. So ideally, currently, these languages use a transpiler to deal with these decorators. And ideally now, they will just be able to generate the JavaScript code as is, and it'll just work. Got it. So that's the concept of decorators. The last stage three uh, uh, item that I wanted to mention is something called Shadow Realms. like a game or a movie or something, Which sounds kind of spooky or ominous. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Do you want to come to my Shadow Realm? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Um, Kind of reminiscent of Shadow Dom. If you're if you're familiar with that, if you remember that, um, so Shadow Realm, the idea is that you want to create a distinct global environment. What do I mean by that? You know, like when you create an iframe, let's say you have an iframe in your tab, and it's an iframe to to the same uh, domain, so you can actually call functions directly with the inside the iframe or the iframe can call functions that are directly inside the, the containing tab because they're both in the same domain. But they actually have their own distinct global objects. And they have their own distinct prototypes for the various built-in object types. Um, so uh, for a uh, 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 if you remember, uh, a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. well, not a lot of people, but people would run into surprising issues with that sort of thing. Like they would try to check if some object is an array by comparing its prototype to window.array with a capital A, and it will come out as false because it was an array that was created inside the iframe. So the, its prototype was actually different. It was also window.array, but it was a different window, so it was a different window.array instance. So, you know, funny stuff like that. It's more like a sandbox. So, uh, Shadow Realm is a way to be explicit about this. Like, get similar uh, behavior, but without needing an iframe for it. So, a shadow, when you create... Yeah, exactly. It's a sandbox. You... You run script inside the Shadow Realm, that script gets its own global and gets its own uh, prototypes on the objects. So, for example, if you want to run potentially some sort of an untrusted script, I don't know, third-party cookies, whatever, uh, you can run them inside of a Shadow Realm instead of inside your global environment, and then you have assurances that they're not polluting your global environment in any unexpected sort of a way. I know that a lot of people have been looking for something like this for a long time. It will be interesting to see, you know, how this mm-hmm. feature is is used. Uh, anyway, so those are the what is it? Five uh, stage three uh, pro- uh, um, additions to JavaScript that I wanted to talk about. Like I said, because they're stage three. They're all going to effectively make it unless there's like a last-minute surprise or something. Uh, and we might expect to see them implemented in browsers in, in a year from now or something like that. Some of them, as we saw, even sooner than that. Um, do we have time, like a bit of time, to go over the few stage two items? Yeah, we got a couple. 
we're getting close to an hour, but yeah, we could drop a couple in. Yeah, so I already mentioned one, which was the async iterator helpers, which were like the iterator helpers, but for asynchronous iterators. So instead of just iterating over collections like um, a map or a set, with async iterators, you can iterate over sequences like uh, data coming in over the network or a sequence of events or stuff like that. And uh, there's a proposal to add helpers like map, filter, etc. for those types of iterators as well. Makes sense. You know, why, if, you know, if you need them for one, then you also need them for the other. And I don't see any reason why this wouldn't get added eventually to the language. Uh, the other stage two proposal is, is one that's also kind of uh, interesting in that it's how is it that this thing hasn't, doesn't exist yet? which is iterator.range. Um, think about it this way. How many times have you wanted to, like, create it, or let's say that you wanted to create an array filled with, let's say, the numbers one, uh, 0 to 1,000, and you had to write, like, you know, kind of obnoxious code, non-trivial code, in order to do it, quote-unquote, cleanly and efficiently. It seems like this kind of thing needs to be built in. If you want to uh, iterate over a sequence of numbers, let's say, and you don't want to use a 4i for it, you want to do it in kind of this functional sort of a way. So that's what ranges provide you with. Um, and it's something that exists in a lot of programming languages. I think you, you've got it in Python, you've got it in Kotlin, you've got it in a lot of programming languages that support this kind of a construct. So you do like the iterator.range and you specify the start of the range, let's say zero, and the end of the range, let's say 100. And what you get in return is an iterator that basically goes through all the values from zero to 100. And you can even specify a skip. Again, anybody who's familiar with, uh, with Python is like banging their head and saying, how is it that something like that hasn't existed before? So, so yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, again, it's kind of difficult for me to explain it without, um, without you know, showing code, but we'll give the, the link and it's, it's pretty obvious. And the nice thing about it is that it works really nicely with the iteration helper functions that I mentioned before. So you can do a range and then filter on the range and then map on the range. And then do an, uh, and then let's say convert it to an array, if you want to get the the final result as an array of values, whatever. It's it's really nice. So is is it clear? Hopefully, I managed to explain it clearly enough. Uh, yeah, as as much as it clear as it can be without actually seeing some code. I mean, with just iterators, you know, iterating over lists or you know arrays generally, arrays of objects. Raise of any number of things all the time, so I'd have to get yeah. and play with these a little more. But anything that makes it easier to pick something out of an array <laughs> is always useful out of a set. I know one of the nice things about um, Laravel is that it has a whole uh, class of tools for that called they call it a collection. But there's just a ton of different uh, helper methods in a in a collection that are designed to help you get things out of your your models, which can be very complex, you know, very easily doing a sum of something or 
uh, iterating over it and doing all kinds of calculations and stuff that just you can do it in a couple lines of code where without that yeah, I think uh, class, you would have to write exactly. And I code. think that's the key point. So yeah, iterators are always useful when you're larger things. and more complex and sophisticated JavaScript applications. So uh, we expect JavaScript the programming language to support this with constructs that make writing larger code bases easier. And uh, we've talked about the lack of a standard library in the past, standard library being a collection of useful functions that you can use. And it, like I said, it seems that uh, TC39 is trying to step up to the plate in this regard and, and kind of fill in the blanks, or at least uh, the most glaring, obvious missing pieces. Um, the last one that I want to talk about before we head on over to PICS is one that's actually in stage one, which means that there is absolutely no guarantee that it will make it into the programming language. In fact, it's been stuck in stage one for a long time, which kind of makes me fairly pessimistic about it. But I wanted to discuss it nonetheless, because when I saw it for the first time, I was actually opposed to it. And now I'm coming around to the conclusion that I think that it's actually really needed in the language and useful. And I'm actually hoping that they'll find some way of moving it beyond stage one and actually adopting it into the programming language. And this uh, feature is called do expressions. Uh, it often confuses people when I mention it because they assume I'm talking about do while, which is a pretty esoteric language feature as well. Uh, but one that's, you know, been part of the language from day one because, you know, JavaScript kind of inherited it from C. But apart from reusing the same keyword, the do keyword, it actually has no relation whatsoever to the do while loops. So let's forget about do while loops. Let's not even discuss them. And let's focus on do expressions instead. What do expressions are uh, they are essentially a mechanism for writing complex expressions, or actually a better way to put it would be to use statement keywords inside of expressions. What do I mean from, by that? In, in JavaScript, unlike some other programming languages, specifically functional programming languages, makes a, dis a very clear distinction between things that are expressions and things that are not expressions. And certain things, uh, uh, JavaScript keywords are not expressions and cannot be used as part of expressions. For example, the for loop cannot be part of an expression. If you want to use a, have a loop inside of an expression, you need to use some sort of an iteration method like a map or a filter, which you know, returns a value. A for loop does not return a value. Yeah, another example of something which isn't, uh, um, which can't be used inside of an expression is if statements. You know, if we wanted to uh, have conditionals instead uh, inside expressions, we had to use uh, ternary expressions. Okay, that's what I was going to say. You can do it just with ternaries. Yeah, but that's, 
much less readable, especially when it becomes complex. I'm sure you've seen situations where it's question mark, colon, question mark, colon, question mark, colon, and so forth. And it's multi-level it, ternaries. Yeah, that's yeah. confusing. And ifs are more explicit and easier to read, but they can't be used as an expression. So do expressions change that? You do, let's say, uh, let X equals do open curly brackets. And Mm. from that point on, until the end of the curly brackets, everything in it behaves differently. It behaves as if it's part of an expression. It's kind of like doing using an iffy, uh, you know, uh, mm. uh, a self-invoked anonymous function, you know, you, where you can, you, you want to assign some, uh, some value into a variable and it's a sophisticated computation and it's hard to do as a simple expression, um, but you don't want to create a global function for it. It's just, it's a very localized computation. So you might use an iffy for it. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, immediately invoking function expression. Yeah, but there's a lot of boilerplate associated with it when you're doing it. There's a lot of uh, open and closed parentheses in order to get it to work. And Mm -hmm. it's it's always slightly confusing, especially for newbies. Yeah, we Uh, had to use them a lot with jQuery. Um, If we wanted, uh, I know inside the Drupal world, that was how we implemented things was with iffies where you had your function yeah. and then the, the parentheses afterwards that caused it to be invoked. Yeah, how, how would uh, uh, Douglas Crockford all, always refer to them as gonads hanging on <laughs> at the end of, of, the, of the function uh, of the right. iffy. I can uh, see that. But yeah, so do expressions actually do away with all these parentheses? But it goes beyond that because inside the do expressions, semantics actually change. So an if, can become a part of an expression. And the value of the if, you don't need to put returns in it, actually, mm. because the, the last value that you get to, that's the value of the expression. So you might do something like if something, you know, zero, else 42. And you don't need to put the return. You don't, you just write that value in it, and that gets returned, quote-unquote, as the value of the do expression. Again, difficult to explain without showing the code. We'll put a link to the actual proposal. So So the the expression has... the semantic of the language inside. Yeah, but it doesn't use the return value. It's just the last value inside. You just write the value. And that last value, instead of basically doing nothing gets, quote-unquote, returned as the value of the do expression. Okay. So you could do if something, one, else, if, three, else, if, 42, else, zero. Stuff like that. Now, that's the reason that I initially disliked this proposal, because inside the do expression, it changes the semantics of the language. And that's kind of scary. Uh, Certainly for newbie programmers where they suddenly see familiar statements working differently. Um, And and that's why when I saw it, I said, 
okay, cool, but I don't want it. But now, like I said, I do actually want it. And there are a couple of reasons. The first reason is that we are, these days, we're creating in our JavaScript code really sophisticated expressions, much more so than we've ever done. And the, the reason for that is JSX. Because when you return JSX, that's an expression. And if you want to have conditionals inside of the JSX, which you often do, you know, render this or render that based on some value, then these days you use ternary expressions and it can get pretty hairy. And if you want to do loops, then you have to use maps and filters. You can't use four. If you do want to use four, you have to kind of explicitly split it into like its own separate function or something, which is kind of annoying. Um, and do expressions solve all that. You can put a do expression inside of your JSX, and all of a sudden, inside the expression, you can actually use ifs, which makes the code a lot more readable, I have to say, from examples that I've seen in the proposal itself. So JSX, and, and JSX is, I, I know that you'll come from the view world that kind of excuse JSX, you know, poo-poo's it, whatever, call it whatever way you want. But effectively, all other frameworks are kind of adopting it. So obviously React, but also uh, Solid and Quick and others. So JSX is kind of a big part of the, of the web development these days. And anything which can make JSX better, you know, I think the programming language needs to align with the way in which developers are using it. And a large portion, a very large portion of the JavaScript developers, maybe even the majority of them, are using JSX and therefore can really benefit from do expressions. Do expressions actually have two additional benefits, which I'll, I'll, exp uh, I'll explain really briefly. One is that they inherit uh, uh, the ability to call await from their containing function. So if their containing function is async, they can await and in, in, in the await behaves as you would expect. It actually blocks the computation of that expression, um, and which is kind of more, much more challenging to do with an iffy. Uh, so, so that's one big benefit of it. And the other is that you can actually use the return value, the return statement inside a do expression, and it will actually return out of the containing function. So that and that's really cool. You can really short circuit from the middle of an expression, which can be really useful in some cases. So it definitely has benefits. And that's why I've gone from, you know, being against it again for changing the semantics of the language to being for it because I think it's just really beneficial for the given the way in which a lot of developers are using JavaScript these days. Yeah, I mean, I could see some some use cases for that because there are times when, even in in Vue, the non JSX language. Um, 
where you want to do an expression to you know to bind or to calculate a particular uh, class you want to bind to the style element of an attribute or attribute of an element, excuse me, um, or any number of things that you want to do where all you have, you can use an expression, but you're limited, you know, by space where being able to do that, I could see would provide a lot more flexibility for sure. So, you know, that's it. Those are the proposals that I wanted to talk about today. Hopefully our listeners found it interesting. Um, I'm, you know, I know that some people, like AJ, for example, or unfortunately couldn't be here, um, kind of don't like the fact that JavaScript continues to grow in this way. And I can totally understand why. Because JavaScript has become a much more co complex and sophisticated programming language than uh, it used to be. Now, obviously, you can choose to avoid certain aspects of it that you dislike but you can't really maybe prevent your colleagues from using it, which means that you'll end up having to deal with these additions, whether you like it or not. So I can understand where AJ is coming from, but I do think that at least some of these additions are making the language better. Definitely the ones that are effectively creating a standard library on top of it, which is like I said, something that I thought was sorely lacking and I'm I'm really happy to see this void being filled. Oh so yeah, that kind of uh, concludes my exposition of uh, of these new JavaScript features. We'll have to I'm sure you'll keep us up to date as they move through the process. Right? We'll have to update now and then and see where things stand with being with these things actually being added and implemented in in the TIFIC browser and their engines. With that we will move on to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about other things other than coding and, and deep and nerdy JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> but we're nerds. We are. I prefer the term geek, but it's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're both. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, so I'll start. Uh, found an interesting article today, Hacker News, um, and it's about nuts. Uh, in particular... Uh, you know, when in, in the past, when I've been working on, on losing some weight and dropping some weight, one of the things you hear about nuts is that they're good. They've got health benefits, but they have a lot of calories. And so you don't want to eat too many. Uh, story I'm reading here today from a triathlete.com article is that they don't have as many calories as you thought. And it really gets rather geeky or nerdy into the, the science a little bit and how the breakdown of the food in your digestive system works and so on. So it's really good. But the takeaway for me is that I can eat more nuts. Not that I'm already not nuts, as the case may be. Um, so for the dad jokes of the week, uh, let's see. Simple one. This is more along my, my uh, son's line of thought. So what did a full glass of water say to the empty glass of water? I don't, I don't know. know. Why do you look drunk? <laughs> Okay. All right, because it's been drunk. Right. It reminds me of, uh, of a joke that I know uh, where uh, the uh, pessimist sees the glass half empty, the optimist sees the glass half full, and the programmer says, we could have used a smaller glass. Exactly. <laughs> um, I recently, you know, we've talked, you, you read a lot more about 
uh, recently about like human machine type of interface. Uh, I think the Borg from Star Trek is a, is a classic example. And so I've been reading about that more. And so I actually got a clock implanted in my brain, but it didn't take long before I started having second thoughts. Okay. Right. Seconds, second thoughts. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, Thought this it. is sort of a religious joke. Um, what do you call a book club that's been stuck on the same book for years? Church. Six books, if you want to get technical, but you get the idea. Yeah. All right. Dan, what do you got for us? Okay. So um, I spoke at uh, a tech conference recently called uh, J Nation in Coimbra in Portugal. Uh, and one of the great things that about conferences, uh, at least the way in which I attend them, is now that my kids are older and I don't have to worry about what, hap- what goes on with them, is that we actually turn such, uh, uh, you know, speaking opportunities into uh, vacations. So my wife joined me and we toured for about a week and a half through Portugal. Uh, funnily enough, we were actually supposed to do this like three years ago, but then COVID happened. So we were kind of also making up for that uh, missed vacation from three years ago. And I have to say that uh, Portugal is amazingly beautiful and highly recommended. Uh, we went to uh, Lisbon and Sintra and Obidos and Porto and the Douro Valley in Coimbra, where the conference was held. And it's, it's just a lovely country. One of the great things about it is that uh, Portugal did not really go through a really destructive war since like the Middle Ages. So all the castles and old cities and old buildings uh, are preserved. Uh, so you, you get to see a ton of history there. Because, you know, in other parts of Europe, everything is effectively reconstructed because everything kind of got demolished in, in the Second World War. Um, and, uh, and also the nature is beautiful. Like the Douro Valley is, is amazingly beautiful. So I highly recommend visiting Portugal. And it's uh, my first pick. Um, what's my next pick? Oh. My next pick is that I'll actually be speaking at uh, a, an additional two conferences pretty soon. Uh, one is in about a week and a half, so it will probably in the past by the time this episode comes out. Uh, and it's called the React Next uh, in uh, Tel- here in Tel Aviv in Israel. It's a pretty big conference. It's over a thousand attendees, and I know that they're sold out. Uh, our friend Tejas who I hoped could be an extra panelist, but it seems he's too busy to join us most of the time. Uh, he's also actually going to be giving the keynote there. Uh, I'll be speaking there as well. I'll actually be talking about uh, how different uh, frameworks uh, these days are striving to overcome the, co- the performance cost of hydration. It's something that I think I actually spoke about in a past episode on here on uh, JS Jabber, but I, I don't. Uh, remember which one. So probably we'll need to look up afterwards. Uh, well, I think we talked about a lot with uh, Quick, with the framework Quick. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which brings me, so so that's, so, and I'll also be talking at another conference, actually giving the same talk at another conference 
in uh, in Zurich in in Switzerland. It's called the Front Conference Zurich, and which actually gives me the opportunity to go visit uh, Austria and Switzerland. So here we go again, and hopefully that will be my uh, my pick in a future uh, episode about how great these countries are to visit and tour through. Uh, and uh, my final pick for today is that uh, you just mentioned Quick. Uh, Mishko Hevery, who created Quick and also previously created Angular, actually visited Israel uh, last week. Uh, we've been online friends or virtual friends, and we got, finally got to meet face-to-face. And, you know, I, I attended his talk at the meetup, and then we went out for drinks afterwards. And it was really great. He's a great guy. It was a lot of fun talking with him, both, you know, in general and also about the great things that they're doing in Quick. So I'll just give Quick a shout out and I'll say that uh, if you're looking for a framework which provides a great performance out of the box, essentially whatever code you write, then Quick is something that you should definitely be looking at. And I think we will have Mishko again on in, a, in an upcoming episode. So we'll get a chance to grill him some more about uh, the, the great and crazy things that they're doing in that framework. Uh, and those would be my picks for today. All righty. So as usual, we are going long here, but this episode is chock full of great information. So you probably need to listen to it twice just to digest the amazing de- data that is contained in it. With for that, sure. we will say goodbye. Thank you to Dan for his details on what we can look for coming down the pike. And we will talk to you next time on JavaScript Jabber.